1: Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, we look ahead to the longer-term effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, both from the pandemic itself, but more so the health effects of a seriously depressed economy. And we'll look at that with Professor Sir Michael Marmot of University College London, a world authority on the social and economic factors affecting health and life expectancy, plus Professor Sanchez Aranda of the Cancer Council of Australia. Also, should we allow vaccine trials to deliberately infect participants with the COVID-19 virus? rather than wait for them to be exposed naturally? And what can we learn from many years of coronavirus research in veterinary medicine? Maybe quite a lot. While the death and disease threats from COVID-19 during the pandemic period are huge, The devastation to the global and local economies is also enormous, and there's plenty of research to inform what the effects will be on health, well-being, and even life expectancy. And you won't be shocked to hear that these effects won't be evenly shared across the community. Some people will come off worse than others. Much of that research in recent years has been led by Professor Sir Michael Marmot at University College London. But before we get to that, according to Michael Marmot, there are already signs that the pandemic itself is amplifying disparities.
2: I think we're seeing a marked change. When the epidemic struck, princes and paupers alike were susceptible. The Prince of Wales, the Prime Minister in the UK, Tom Hanks, the actor, got COVID-19. Then the next phase with lockdown exposed the sharp divisions in society, those who could work from home and those who couldn't those who had reserves of income or wealth and those who couldn't afford to eat, those in a good position to home educate their children when the schools closed and those who were not, those in comfortable housing and those in overcrowded conditions. And all of those fault lines will increase risk of exposure risk of severe illness and risk of social and economic consequences as a result of responses in those lower down the hierarchy. So it's likely that not only will we see underlying social inequalities in health exposed, they will be amplified by the pandemic.
1: And on top of that, claims Michael Marmot, are the profound health effects of an economic depression.
2: In the early stages of an economic depression, somewhat counterintuitively, total mortality does not seem to rise. You get a rise in suicides. You get a rise in mental illness. But the rise in suicide deaths is set against a drop in mortality from traffic crashes, for example. People are not driving around. They don't take the car out. So in the initial stages, But as it goes on, we're looking at all sorts of deep effects. And last week, the IMF put out a prediction that the global economy would shrink by just over 3% this year. A year after the financial crash, the global economy shrank by 0.1%. And think of the damage that did. So a 3% drop in the global economy, and I think that may well be optimistic. That will affect all the key social determinants of health. Only two months ago, I published Health Equity in England, the Marmot Review, 10 years on, and we pointed to the fact that life expectancy had not increased and health inequalities had increased and life expectancy for women, particularly in the poorest areas of England, had gone down. And it was likely that that was linked to austerity. And I went through the key determinants of health, early child development, education, employment and working conditions, number four, having enough money to live on, and number five, environments, including housing. And things got worse for all of those five. Things are likely to get much worse for all of those five come a global recession consequent upon the pandemic. And that means we are facing the prospect of significant worsening of health inequalities. And that's really frightening.
1: The biggest risk, according to Michael Marmot, is how governments deal with economic recovery and the debt they've incurred.
2: There's an important lesson to learn. What the British government did in 2010, faced with large debt and deficit, said, we must have austerity. There is no alternative and it did great damage. Now, 10 years later, faced with the pandemic, they threw all that so-called orthodoxy out the window and said, whatever it takes. And it's right that they did that. As we emerge from the pandemic, whatever you do, don't go back to a fetish about debt and deficit. Go forward to an important question. What kind of society do we want? In the US, From around 1999, white men and women, middle age, have had an increase in so-called deaths of despair, poisonings due to opioids, largely, suicide and alcohol-related problems. We've been largely spared that. We might see more of it with a global recession, and that would be extremely worrying. In 2010, The UK was facing an annual deficit, 11 or 12 percent of GDP. And that was thought to be unsustainable. So the government did two things. It rolled back the state. It reduced public expenditure from 42 percent of GDP to 35 percent. And the second thing it did was to be remarkably regressive. It cut more from the poor than it did from the rich. And it didn't work. If you look at the growth of incomes for employed people between 2007 and 2017, it was minus 5%. And the cuts to services, we cut public expenditure, we made poorer people worse off, and we made health inequalities worse. So we've got a clear message. Don't do that. That's very bad for society. Don't do that. So then you ask, well, what's the alternative? The alternative is faced with debt. Spend more. What? Spend more? How can you be saying that? Do you know what the interest rate on debt is? Make the health and well-being of your population a priority. And as the economy recovers, then you reduce the debt and the deficit. Not when the country is depressed and you're going to make people worse off. The notion is to improve the lives people are able to lead. That's what we want to do. Because if we do that, health will improve and health inequalities will diminish. Now, that should be the priority. And if that means tolerating debt and deficit when the interest rates are close to zero, then we tolerate it. And as the economy recovers, then we do something about the debt and the deficit. And that's what this crisis has shown us. Faced with a crisis, you can rank out all the debts you like. Well, I would say that the underlying health inequalities in our society also represents a crisis. The problem is we just don't see it as that.
1: Professor Sir Michael Marmot is Director of the Institute of Health Equity at the University College London. And you're listening to RN's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. The prompt diagnosis of cancers and their subsequent treatment could get caught up in this potential widening of health disparities in the community. This comes on top of concerns that in the last three months, people haven't been coming forward with symptoms like bleeding or having breast and cervical cancer screening. Professor Sancia Aranda is CEO of Cancer Council Australia. Welcome back to The Health Report, Sancia.
0: Thank you, Norman.
1: Well, let's start with the medical impact of the pandemic directly. What do we know about the potential for late or missed cancer diagnoses?
0: So what we're seeing is that with people's concern about COVID-19, they are not going to the doctor as often. We're seeing significant reductions in presentations to GPs, around a 40% reduction in presentation or in pathology testing. And we're starting to see that flow through to reductions in notifications to our cancer registries, which are the key uh, ways in which we count the numbers of cancers, and and so that's potentially going to lead to later diagnosis, which will have a long term impact on survival.
1: So when you look at the cancer registries, so if somebody gets diagnosed with cancer, they're notified to the, the state based cancer registries, mm-hmm. and compared to last year, there's a reduction. Is that what you're saying?
0: That's correct. So we're seeing we're seeing not the expected numbers of notifications coming through. We don't think that those are delays because certainly for New South Wales and Victoria, they have an electronic pathology system. And so the the feed comes directly from those systems. Uh, And so it feels real. And it's consistent with reports from, uh, for example, the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre was reporting a 25% reduction in the number of new patients coming through the doors, despite the fact that they're completely open and ready for business.
1: So is this because they're not turning up for screening or I mean, are there are particular cancers that are lower uh, so, notifications?
0: So we don't have um, any data on what the notifications are. Certainly the pause on breast screen will have an influence. That will be tens of thousands of women who won't have had a breast screen in the last six weeks and some of those will be women who have a breast cancer diagnosis. But it will also be because the not going to GPs, then people won't be having cervical screening. But we're very concerned from cancer and a broader chronic disease perspective that people are sitting at home worried about catching COVID-19 and simply not taking their symptoms to their doctor as they normally would.
1: I mean, it's an interesting contrast because I've spoken to people in the heart disease area and they reckon that actually there hasn't been much change there, but cancer is going to be a delayed story.
0: Yes, we we believe that it will be. I, th- I think partly it's also a, a disease that people are frightened of, and so there's that inherent reluctance um, or often sitting on symptoms that you see generally in the in the population. And then if they're concerned um, about seeing their doctor that will add to that. we We're also pretty concerned about lung cancer and, given that about 70% of the telehealth consults that are happening in general practice are actually by telephone, that you, we're missing the opportunity through those kinds of consultations other than with the, the most alert GPs to the kinds of things that you might notice about patients um, during a physical not presentation.
1: In Let's go yes. to follow Michael Marmot's uh, interview there about disparities in health. What do we know about the disparities in cancer outcomes between people you know, the haves and the have-nots, in a sense?
0: So we know that if you are in the lowest socioeconomic group in Australia, you've got a 37% higher chance of dying from your cancer than if you're in the most privileged group. Now, that will have something to do with differences in risk factors, so higher smoking rates, for example, lower screening rates. But that's not the whole story. Uh, Estimates that have been done for us by the QIMR, suggest that it's around 40% of the story. But we also know that there's a massive impact um, around the financial stresses of having a cancer diagnosis, that your ability to take time off work to go for your GP visit or your screening visit if you're a casual employee or or somebody who, who doesn't have sick leave. And then people are reportedly or increasingly reporting um, out-of-pocket costs that mean that they're ma- already making Um, Inferior decisions about their cancer treatment because of the costs, um, whether that's direct costs or costs from having extra time off work. And we are very concerned that these differences will ultimately be exacerbated by the increased financial strain that COVID-19 and
1: unemployment is
0: putting on our population.
1: What can be done about it?
0: Well, I think the first thing is that we need to really get the messages out and we're working with Cancer Australia to say the cancer system is open and needs to be, um, you, you, you do need to go to your doctor. We would really um, love to see the job seeker payment stay at the level it is. We've been supporting the Australian Council of Social Services campaign to raise the rate of new start because it is almost impossible to live after a cancer diagnosis um, on Newstart, and yet it is what um, this government uses for um, social security um, payments or sickness payments when someone gets cancer um, and other diseases, importantly. We certainly need to address... Um, the out-of-pocket costs and while the transparency website that the government has developed will go some way we actually need to make sure that our public system is not exacerbating out of pockets through things like referral to um, private providers of diagnostic and and, uh, and other services and all of these things um, really add to the burden.
1: Sancho, thanks for joining us.
0: My pleasure, Norman. Thank you.
1: Professor Sanchez-Aranda is CEO of Cancer Council Australia. Human vaccine trials began last week using a SARS-CoV-2 vaccine developed in Oxford, which had undergone an, undergone animal testing in Australia, and we actually covered that on the health report. At the moment, human vaccine trials are testing whether the vaccine is safe in humans, what dose you need to induce a good antibody response, and finally, whether that antibody response is enough to prevent infection with this coronavirus. It's the last part of that that takes time because the researchers are relying on exposure to the COVID-19 virus in the community, possibly in countries where COVID-19 incidents might be falling and therefore exposure less. One answer, say some, is to allow volunteers to be challenged with the COVID-19 virus after immunisation. That could speed up findings. But what about safety? Is it ethical? And will it be scientifically valid? Nearly 4,000 people have registered their willingness to volunteer for a human challenge study through an organization called One Day Sooner. Josh Morrison is a founder, and I spoke to him earlier. Uh, Thank you for having me. Just give us a bit of the backstory here.
3: About a month ago, uh, I read this article um, that ended up being published in the Journal of Infectious Diseases about using what's called human challenge trials, trying to speed up vaccine development for COVID-19. I really hadn't heard of human challenge trials before, but the idea of potentially being able to accelerate a vaccine by multiple months, that seemed pretty incredible to me. I live in New York City, which is kind of the epicenter of infection in the United States, and I was feeling you know, really scared, really depressed. My day job is with living organ donation, and kidney donation rates in the U.S. are, are down by about 90%, so I didn't really have all that much to do. And I saw this article, um, and I ended up talking to the author and talking to a few friends about it, and it seemed like potentially a good idea, and it seemed like something I would be willing to do. And I also felt like just based on my experience with advocacy on behalf of kidney donors that I had kind of the right experience and skills to actually maybe try to put something together to, to bring lots of people together who might want to participate in a challenge like this.
1: So basically, like live kidney donors who are unrelated, you're exploiting, not exploiting is the wrong word, but you're tapping into people's altruism.
3: Yes, exactly, exactly. And, and also I would add that with the kidney donation work, the theory of it is if we gave kidney donors more power and say in the transplant field, kidney donors would be sort of treated better, they could get like lifetime health insurance, for example, and more people would donate. And the same idea is true here that I think that by giving people interested in being challenge volunteers – more of a choice and more of a say in the policy making around human challenge trials, it'll lead to better policy outcomes for society.
1: What do you mean by that?
3: Obviously, the the biggest concern people have with these challenge trials is ethical and is, you know, is this too much of a risk? Are these people informed? Are people being exploited? Are you you taking people who are desperate or anything like that? And I think that bringing people together who want to participate in this and kind of listening to what they or or we have to say, I think that helps address some of these ethical concerns and at the very least informs this social discussion a lot better.
1: Now, there have been experiments with, say, malaria vaccines and malaria Mm -hmm. treatments where you deliberately, and it's often the researchers who get infected, but then there's Mm -hmm. a treatment, there's a drug that you can give. Exactly. You're walking into this, albeit with your eyes open, but some people might die as a result of Mm -hmm. the challenge if they're not protected Mm -hmm. by the vaccine. Do people really understand Uh, that?
3: Yeah, no, I, I think that's obviously an important point. And yes, it's on the one hand, challenge trials have been used for a number of diseases like malaria and typhoid, cholera, flu and also dengue fever. But you're right that this is different, where we don't right now have a proven medical treatment. And we're hoping that there is a treatment by the time a challenge trial be run. It's going to take some period of months to to set challenge trials up if they move forward. But we need to go forward on the assumption that we won't necessarily have that treatment. And I think, you know, in this case, when you look at the actual numbers, 1st Clearly, we're in an extraordinary circumstance. You know, this is an era-defining situation. It's something that, that really, in living memory, has changed daily life really more than, than anything else across the world. So I think that extraordinary measures are called for. But I would also add that, yes, there's no medical treatment but challenge trials would only be conducted among young people and people who are otherwise healthy. And that's not to say there's not a risk. And it certainly is the case that people might die. And that's something, you know, everyone who considers it has to take very seriously. So let's
1: assume that people are walking to their eyes open. It's a young group. There are some scientific issues here. One is the dose of the virus you might get. And does it bear any relationship Mm -hmm. to the real dose that you might get in the environment? And secondly, Mm -hmm what you find in young people may not be reflected in the high-risk group, which is older people. Mm -hmm. And therefore, Mm -hmm. you might be putting people at risk and not answering the scientific question.
3: Those are two of the very important limitations on challenge trials. And I'd also add one more that I think isn't worth thinking about, which is that if the method of action for a vaccine is on reducing the amount of infections that turn into serious disease, it's more difficult for challenge trials to do that as well. And so I, I will say that, yes there are certain limitations that the challenge trials have. In my group, you know, we don't necessarily take it as a given that these are going to be useful and going to be necessarily workable. That said, the same way the challenge trials have in human infection models have been useful for developing other vaccines, even though they have those same issues about not being representative, not being the same way you would necessarily get infection in the general population, they could also be quite useful here. And the way I think of challenge trials is it's probably not gonna be a perfect replacement for a traditional trial. So it's something that would happen alongside those trials. But what it does is it gives you an efficacy signal, a signal for whether the vaccine is effective earlier than you'd get otherwise. And it's an imperfect signal but if you can find out several months in advance that if you look just in young people, the people treated by a vaccine, 20% get infected, whereas people not treated by the vaccine, 80% get infected, that's extremely useful from a vaccine manufacturer perspective. And the flip side of that, if there's no difference, that's also useful, even if it is a younger population.
1: And if people want to register, they go to One Day Sooner.
3: Yep, it's onedaysooner.org. Josh, thanks for joining us. Thank you.
1: Josh Morrison is one of the founders of One Day Sooner. There's a long history of human medicine taking a while to wake up to the fact that veterinary medicine is often way ahead. For example, IVF was standard practice in large animals long before humans. And so it may be with COVID-19. It turns out that coronavirus infections are common in cats, cows, chickens, and pigs. Chickens and cows get a respiratory disease, cats get a peritonitis, that's an infection of the membrane that surrounds the bowel, and pigs get a gastroenteritis. And these coronaviruses, in turn, have also come from other animals. Veterinary researchers have a lot of experience developing coronavirus vaccines, understanding the duration of immunity, and testing treatments. So what can vets teach us that might help us with this new human coronavirus? Nicola DeCaro is Professor of Infectious Diseases of Animals in the Department of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Bari in Italy. Welcome to The Health Report, Nicola. Thank you, James.
4: Thank you for inviting me to your uh, radio broadcast, and good afternoon to all your uh, radio listeners.
1: Well, you're giving credit to James, who's the producer. This is Norman. You're speaking to. Okay,
4: Norman. Sorry, Norman. But, but James,
1: James is now basking in the glow. Um, let's start with vaccines. What's been the experience? I mean, I mean, these are animals which you know are worth money, so therefore there's a commercial interest here in these animals. What's been the experience protecting against, for example, respiratory infections in animals um, due to coronavirus?
4: So, Norman, at uh, the moment we have just uh, one vaccine which is uh, effective against uh, coronavirus respiratory disease in animals. So this vaccine is. Uh, against the infectious bronchitis virus of poultry, which is uh, an important disease, uh, respiratory disease of poultry, which causes uh, uh, a very huge economic loss in, uh, in poultry industry. And these viruses can also affect the reproductive tract and the kidney as well. And uh, this vaccine, of course, uh, is effective against the disease but does not prevent the infection by the field virus. Uh, And this is the unique uh, vaccine available against uh, an animal respiratory disease because uh, the other vaccines uh, that uh, are commercially available are against enteric diseases of uh, animals, such as. uh, Bovine coronavirus or the swine enteric coronavirus. There are a lot of swine enteric coronaviruses, and for some of these, we have effective vaccines.
1: Let's just explore this respiratory, this respiratory immunization. So, what you're saying is that it prevents disease but not infection. Why is that?
4: Yes, because uh, there is uh, no uh, strict relationship between infection and disease. I mean. Uh, Uh, Not all infections uh, uh, leads to the development of clinical disease. And for COVID-19, you see that there are a lot of people that are infected but are asymptomatic. They do not show uh, signs, clinical signs of the disease. And also, if uh, we vaccinate uh, animals or even humans against coronavirus, we should expect that uh, Uh, these uh, vaccinated animals of humans uh, they could be could uh, uh, develop uh, a protection against the disease we don't know of course at the moment but not against infection
1: so the the, the virus gets in which is what we talked about a few weeks ago in the program because there's not good immunity in the upper respiratory tract but effectively it's almost like a therapeutic vaccine where it stops the disease happening now do you do you get in animals the problem that they found in SARS-1 which is when the uh, immunized monkeys and then they challenged them with the SARS virus they got an immune activation very similar to the bad disease that's caused by the virus by the virus itself
4: yes in veterinary medicine we have uh a very good example, which is uh, the, the the vaccination trials against uh, FIP, feline infectious peritonitis. This is uh, a cats. very devastating disease of cats, uh, which cause uh, the the death uh, of, of all uh, cats uh, that develop this disease. And uh, in uh, in cats, we have this example of vaccine that uh, they not only are not effective but also they are dangerous. They are not safe because uh, they are able to induce a well-known phenomenon which is called uh, ADE, Antibody Dependent Enhancement. Uh, According to this phenomenon, a a vaccinated uh, animal or even uh, man uh, can produce low titers antibodies that are cytophilic and uh, these antibodies, instead of protecting the vaccinated animals uh, after infection with the field virus, uh, they can uh, uh, help uh, the virus uh, entry the the cells because these antibodies uh, can bind to the the target cells, uh, thus helping the virus to to entry into the cells. uh, And this can cause uh, an exacerbation of the clinical disease. Uh, So that's why we don't have at the moment vaccines against FIP, and so, that's why the, the the experiments against the SARS-CoV-1 were not successful.
1: So just what do we know about the duration of immunity in the successful vaccines that there are for coronavirus in animals? How long does the immunity last?
4: Usually coronaviruses are not good immunogenic agents because they cause usually uh, mucosal disease, mucosal infection. They infect just the respiratory or the enteric tract, or both, according to the different coronaviruses. So even vaccines are not able to induce a long-lasting immunity. You should think about that uh, the the vaccine should be injected parenterally, but these viruses replicate, uh, if uh, we... Uh, we refer to SARS-CoV-2. They just replicate in the respiratory tract. So, what we need in a long-term approach is to develop a, a vaccine which should be able to induce the local, the mucosal immunity, which is mediated by IgA antibodies, not IgG antibodies. And so, in other words, you va- might you might sniff
1: yeah. the vaccine rather than having it injected.
4: I didn't get sorry. You might no sniff way. it. It
1: might be sprayed into the nose rather than injected.
4: Is yeah, because we have example in uh, in with some uh, animal uh, uh, disease that uh, we can inject, we can spray the vaccine in the nose instead to administering
1: uh, just, parentally. Just finally, because we're running out of time. So what you know, knowing what you know, and you've been heavily involved in research in this area. What are the chances of having a human vaccine to coronavirus in 12 to 18 months? You've not cheered me up at all in this interview.
4: Yeah, I'm sure that uh, thanks to the modern technology, we will have finally a vaccine. But uh, I'm not sure if we will be able to have this vaccine in the short term. Uh, The the 12, uh, 8 months is the... The, the shorter period we can uh, expect, but maybe we, we will need uh, more time.
1: Nicola, thanks for joining us.
4: Thanks to you, Norman. and Sorry for the mistake. No, it's fine. Nicola <laughs> okay. De Caraux
1: is Professor of Infectious Diseases of Animals in the Department of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Bari. I'm Norman Swan. This has been The Health Report. See you next week.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.